listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Stephen Williams was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Eastern New Mexico University and a Master of Fine Arts from Indiana University. Now in his 24th year at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, Stephen is chair, program coordinator, and head of design and production for the theater department. He is a freelance scenic lighting and graphic designer who has designed over 100 productions with such notable companies as the Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival, Nebraska Shakespeare Festival, the Omaha Community Playhouse, Blue Barn Theater, the Rose Theater, Theater Aspen, Heritage Repertory Theater, Indiana University, Brown County Playhouse, and McLeod Summer Playhouse. Since 1998, he has designed scenery for Thorn Productions, which produces The Thorn, one of the largest touring church productions in the country. This production has been seen live by nearly 1 million people and televised to over 20 million households. He most recently designed scenery for a national concert tour for Rivals, the opening act for Newsboys. He has been recognized on numerous occasions by the Omaha Theater Arts Guild and the Omaha Entertainment and Arts Awards Committees for his scenic and lighting designs. His most rewarding design work has been for a police investigation training facility for Project Harmony here in Omaha. Stephen Williams, welcome to the Green Room. Great, thanks for having me. Thank you. So as I like to ask people who are not from Nebraska originally, and <laughs> we'll get to this, why did you come here? But before we get to that, let's start at the beginning. So you are from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yep, born and raised. And where, uh, do you still have family down in New Mexico? I do. I have two brothers. Um, uh, one was in California for years and years and years, and he just moved to Albuquerque with my other brother. So both of my siblings are in Albuquerque. Where did you go to grade school in Albuquerque? Went to Los Ranchos Elementary School. Okay. And when you were in grade school, did you participate in any of the plays there? Not a bit. Not a bit. Not a bit. Okay. What did you, did you participate in sports or anything like that in I did. school? Yeah, I love sports. I love chasing girls. Okay. Um, that was one of my big sports. That's good. Um, I, I'm an amputee and I, I always joke because, well, it's certainly not politically correct now, but I used to threaten the girls that if they didn't stop and let me kiss them on the cheek, that I would take my leg off and hit them. <laughs> Definitely not something that would fly these days, but. Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> but did you get a lot of dates from that though? No. Okay. No, it didn't really work. <laughs> it didn't really work. I didn't work. understand that either, but no, that's okay. No. All right. That's all right. So uh, what sports did you play? Uh, soccer. Oh, I was soccer. in soccer and basketball. Yeah, that's mainly soccer. Soccer was my sport. I played soccer in high school for all of like half a second until I realized there'd be way too much running. Mm -hmm. And that was even before I started smoking and I was getting winded and I'm like, okay, that's enough for me. So then I moved to tennis, but <laughs> so where'd you go to high school? High school, I went to Valley, uh, Valley High School. 
Okay. And did we do any theater then in high school? That's where I actually started in theater, and I completely fell into it. Okay. Um, it was purely by accident that I started theater. Okay. Long story short, my f- I started theater because my dad died. My dad died when I was 13, and I had a really rough time with that, dealing with that, and I had kind of got into some dark things getting into my late junior high, early high school. Uh, my freshman year, I had tried, my mother pulled me out of my current high school, transferred me to a whole new high school, trying to get a whole new surroundings, and that failed miserably. And she transferred me back to my original high school. And one afternoon, I was my best friend. She was going, she said, I've got an audition. Will you come with me and let me audition, then we'll go home together. So I was sitting in the back of the auditorium, and the, the, uh, the teacher, Vicki Turpin, uh, she said, hey, Stephen, will you come up and read this part so I can audition your friend? I said, yeah, fine, whatever. Um, So I went up and I read with her, and then we went home that afternoon. And the next day, my friend said, can we go back to the theater program? I want to see if I got the part. I want to check the cast list. So I went back up there, and she went up, and she had got a part. And the Vicki Turpin said, hey, Stephen, will you come talk to me for a minute? So I went up to her desk, and she says, I really want you involved in this production. So she, she says, I want you to play stage manager. And I went, oh, you know, I have nothing else. I wasn't involved in sports. I wasn't involved in anything at all constructive at that point. Uh, I said, yeah, whatever, sure. So as we're going home, I opened the script and I started flipping through it. And there's a whole bunch of things that are highlighted. And it was the stage manager for the production of Our Town. And so for whatever reason, she cast me as as the narrator in Our Town. So I went through that whole process. And that was the end of my freshman year, I think. By the end of my sophomore year, I was president of the high school drama club, and uh, there was no looking back. I acted for three years. I designed. I did all the tech work, um, you know, as most people do in small theaters and right. small high school programs. But that was really my start, and I, I th- think that that was because my father passed away. And it was because my I didn't grow in an art grow up in an artistic home. I had never seen a theater production before high school, and it was something I just fell into. And after that production of Our Town. Um, my mom came to see it, and she couldn't find me until after intermission, because <laughs> I had just completely transformed from what she was used to seeing me as. Right. And there was something so magical about that, that experience. Yeah. Uh, there was no looking back. How many people in your high school? Uh, it was a big school. There was probably 2,000 people in there. Oh, in okay. The, and the program probably had 30-plus students in the program that were serious theater people. Mm-hmm. What other shows did you do besides Our Town? Oh, boy, we did uh, MASH. I played Hawkeye in MASH. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause, I played Jimmy Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. We did Bye Bye Birdie, because I can't sing. So I was like the third chorus member from the right <laughs> on that one. Oh, what else did we do? Did an original production of American Buffalo in a little tiny studio theater. It was fun. It was a horrible production, but it was good. It, was a, it started my love for David Mamet, uh, which I later grew out of, but... <laughs> I'm going to pause for a second. If anybody okay. hears that hum in the background, my neighbor has decided to weed whack, <laughs> and I can hear it, and I'm sure you can probably hear it too, but hey, that's what happens when that's you what happens. do a podcast. So, all right. So, you graduated from high school, if I may ask, in what year? 1988. 1988. Okay, that was the... Oh, gosh, I'm like a year older than you. I graduated uh-huh. in 87. Yeah. yeah. So, then you decided... To go to eastern New Mexico for college. 
Did you know at that point that it was going to be theater or did you go in undeclared and then decide to continue with theater? During high school, we had the, the a high school theater festival that was hosted by Eastern New Mexico University. So a lot of high schools all over the state would travel down to Portales, New Mexico for this festival. And I met a, the chair of the program, Dr. Rucker, and he offered me a really great scholarship. said, I really want you to come here. I started as an actor. So I got a wonderful acting scholarship. And my mom was a single mom at that time. You know, there was no way I was going to be able to afford college. So without that scholarship, uh, it's the only way I would have continued in, in college. So there was, I knew it was going to be theater because I had no other ideas of what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, obviously your mom was supportive of that. She was. Yeah, absolutely. She was. She, she saw that spark mm-hmm. that she hadn't seen yet. So when you graduated with your Bachelor of Fine Arts, was it in was the emphasis in performance or did you switch over to design at that point? I I had started as an actor and I acted for quite a few shows in my undergraduate program. And I had taken some design courses with my mentor there, Felipe Macias. And uh, he was going on sabbatical and he said, hey, I really like what you did in my design class. I'd like you to take this studio production while I'm on sabbatical. And I said, sure. So I did this, a design for Agnes of God. It was my very first formal scenic design. Did you do the lighting design as well, or was it just scenic? I did. It was just scenic on that one. And it was this weird, like, undulating skateboard ramp thing. And I stood back, and I watched the audience come in. And when they sat down, they started looking at this thing. And it, 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 the, the set itself started telling a story. And the audience started to talk to each other about what was going to happen on this seascape. And that was something I never got as a performer. And I, that was the last time I ever acted. I never acted after that. I was like, I'm sold. This is it. You know, it's interesting that you, that you make that comment. Because we're going to talk in a little bit about your scenic and lighting design for Indecent. Because when I, when I went in and saw that and I walked out... When I talked to people about it afterwards, one of the things that I said was, it's been a long time since I've seen a production where the lights and the set were almost like their own character and told its own story. So it's interesting that you bring that up with Agnes of God. So obviously, you are very good at that. (laughs) So we will explore that in a little bit. So Agnes of God was your first scenic design. So then, so then did you graduate then with just a design degree or was it specifically for scenic and lighting design? Scenic and lighting design. Both BFA and scenic and lighting. Okay. So once you graduated from Eastern New Mexico University, then you decided to pursue your master's also in design, I'm assuming. And was the goal of that to, because there are lots of different reasons why people get their degrees, you know, and sometimes with getting a Master of Fine Arts, it's because they want to teach or it's because they can, you know, get better paying design jobs. What was your thought process when you decided to get your Master of Fine Arts? Well, I definitely wanted to get more formal training on design because I hadn't had a lot of that during my undergrad uh, that was more of um, you know scraping it out because we had to get it done uh, that Felipe did some wonderful design classes but I really wanted to explore deeper into that and I had during my spring break I had applied to North Carolina School of the Arts I had applied to Yale um, Indiana University those are like the big schools I really wanted to look at and 
I went, I toured those all during spring break. And when I got home, I was like, I, I still can't pick. I don't, you know, so I'm going to let them pick for me. Um, and that didn't help because I was fortunate enough to be accepted to all three of them. And like two days later, because I still didn't know what I was going to do. Two days later, I got a little letter in the mail and a gentleman from Indiana University, Wesley Peters, he was at the United States Institute of Theater Technology conference at the time and missed me when I was in Indiana. And he wrote me a, a little letter and it was on this, his personalized stationery that had these little cats all around it. And it was a handwritten letter. And all along the, the margins, there were little tiny sketches of people or little tiny sketches of set design. And I was intrigued by that. I'm like, this man lives and breathes this art. That's who I want to work with. So that, that, that little stationary letter that I still have, that, made my, that was my choice. That's what made my decision to go work with him for three years at Indiana. How many productions did you design in those three years? Ooh, probably seven to eight at, U, at IU. And then I also worked at Brown County Playhouse, which was their summer rep company. And I worked there as a TD and designer and lighting designer. And so I probably had 13 or 14 by the time I left Indiana. Which was the most complex show that you did during that time frame? Summer and Smoke. Summer and Smoke was my senior thesis, my graduate thesis, and I did set and lights for that one. And it was a beautiful, beautiful production. What, uh, what were some of the challenges that you had to face with that production? It was the fact that uh, Summer and Smoke's a challenging play anyway because there's multiple locations on stage at one time. So there are multiple locations. Mm-hmm. What was challenging about that? The challenge was that uh, it, it, I wanted to show that, I know, I remember the two lead actors, they're falling in love, and it's, it's kind of like a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing. They're two families, two people that are not meant to be together, fall in love together. And one is in the rectory of the home, and there's a park, and then the other one is a doctor. And I wanted to show all three of those, and there was the statue of the beautiful angel statue fountain in the middle. And I'm assuming this is a proscenium stage? Proscenium stage. So I really wanted to show that connection between them, even when they're separated by miles. And there was a beautiful moment. I had these two large Gothic windows that flew in behind both le- stage left and stage right. And then the fountain was in the middle. And both of the, the director did a wonderful job. Both of the actors kind of faced three quarters of the way upstage looking at the fountain through the window. But it, you felt that they were so connected emotionally together. And I thought that that was just a beautiful moment that you could show on stage. And I love stage pictures. So that's, that was one moment that I was like, that one really worked. When you sit down to design, do you normally, I guess we'll go back last this. When you're asked to design a project, when you're asked to design a production, are you, do you normally do the scenic and lighting together? Or do you... Have you done productions where you only do set or don't only do lights? I have done both. I've done where I'm just a lighting designer, just a scenic designer. But I, ideally, I would love to do both. Because as a set designer, I, I cannot see a set design without light. Um, anytime I'm envisioning something when I'm first reading a play, I'm seeing it through lighting and how the light hits the stage and hits that canvas. So it's very difficult for me to separate them. And I can understand that. Uh, Jim Othus at the Playhouse is the same way. He'll, a lot of times he'll do the scenic and lighting right. design both. And so I was just curious if that's kind of a design designer's dream or if that if they just interlock that much. Yeah, they do interlock that much. And when they don't, it's it's 
difficult unless I, I had a wonderful um, opportunity to work with Chris Wood, who was a former student of mine for Curious Incident of Dog in the Night at the Playhouse. Um, that was a wonderful experience because I, I fully trusted him with the set design. I've worked with other designers as lighting designers on my set design. I'm like, mm, okay. You know, and I try to nudge him a little bit. Have you thought about this? Right. Wouldn't it be nice if that light was coming through that window up there and cascading across the, the sofa or whatever? Right. Um, right. I try to push him gently in that in that direction mm-hmm. to do what I originally had conceived. Uh, Robert Edmund Jones stated that a set must must breathe the light, and I always I've always held that to my heart. That and that's how I design because I, I love lighting. I love every component of lighting, and it's easier for me to come into somebody else's set design and be a lighting designer. Sure. I definitely talked to them about what their their initial ideas were. Um, but for somebody to come in and light my set designs, it's, it's a little bit more difficult for me to let go of that. I can understand that. Lighting design was always the class that I wanted to take when I was in college, and it always conflicted with my acting classes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I always have a great appreciation for an awesome lighting design. I just, it, like I said, it just tells the story. So you graduated from Indiana University, and then what What did you do immediately after that? Um, I was at uh, United States Institute of Theater Technology. I was, I was fortunate enough to be selected as one of 18 during the Young Designers Forum. Or each year they focus on 18 outstanding designers from around the country and kind of highlight their work at the, at the conference. So I was displaying my work there, and a young lady came up and said, hey, I really like your work. We have a position available. You should really apply for this. And so I got back to Indiana, and I pulled out my atlas. For those of you who are not, you know, it's an old map that you actually looked at. Um, (laughs) And I opened it up, and I figured out where the heck Omaha was on the map. You know, I had no idea. Uh, And I came here, here to interview at the university. And so I was straight out of grad school, and I was hired to be the technical director and designer here. So I started at UNO in 1995, straight out of grad school. Straight out of grad school. And you have worked with Nebraska Shakespeare Festival. How many shows have you done for them? I think I worked seven seasons with them. Doing the set and light, doing sets and lighting design for them? Sets mainly. I did, I did a few seasons of lighting. The lighting is not too intricate out there. Sure. So I, I did a few seasons of the lighting design out there. You said you did, obviously, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime uh, at uh, the Omaha Community Playhouse. But you've done other shows there as well. You've done a couple of shows for mm-hmm. Amy Lane out there. Yep. Recommended reading for girls. Ellen Struve's piece, beautiful piece. Loved yes. working on that show. I was the only male that worked on that entire show. Felt a little out of place, but, <laughs> but they're very accommodating. And I love working with Amy Lane. She's one of my favorite directors ever. Uh, Streetcar Named Desire with Amy Lane also. Next to Normal, I did there. Did lighting design for Monty Python's, yeah, I can't remember the name of the show now. Totally just Spamalot? Spamalot. Yeah, Spamalot. Spamalot. Steve Wielden did the set design for that one from Harlan Scenic Studio. Curious Incident, Dog in the Night. Did lighting design for Carolina Change, which is a beautiful mm. production. Mm-hmm. Beautiful production. It was. It was. Love that one. Uh, and Robbie Jones, my colleague, did the set design for that one. There's a couple others I'm blanking on right now. That's okay. I love working there. You said that you worked with a former student on Curious Incident. Mm-hmm. So can you explain the process of the collaboration you had with Chris? Chris, is he was my student for many, many years, and he and I did not see eye to eye for many years, and he ended up leaving the university for a few years. He needed to go out and find his wings before he came back. And when he came back, we had a new 
mutual understanding at a professional level. And he and I became great friends at that point. So when Jim Othus asked me to do the set design for that, I knew the complexities of that show. And I knew that the Omaha theater community's expectations of that show that had seen it in New York or Chicago or London, I knew, and I, I was asked right off the bat, how are you going to do that? <laughs> so when he told me that he was bringing Chris Wood on, I said, I, I actually said, I need to think about it for a few minutes. I need to talk to Chris about what his vision is on this. So I called up Chris and we chatted for a, a good hour and a half on how we could approach that show and would the budget be available to do that show. And Chris has gone farther as a lighting designer than I, than I have with the newer technology. And I knew that he'd bring that to the table. And that's how we would have to approach it. So when we worked with Kimberly, who was a director on that one, she was wide open to all of these ideas. And fortunately, John Gibalisco and Don Hook and Jim Othus were all fully behind it. And they were willing to put the extra effort in, especially John Gibalisco and his crew. There were over 490 LED pucks that were th- throughout the entire piece. There was a lot of electrical work that had to be done in that. But Chris did a great job. He took it and we worked scene by scene with Kimberly and myself and about how the set could transform through lighting uh, because it was nothing, nothing changed with the set. It was just there. So Chris did some wonderful work and really uh, helped to bring my vision to life through that piece. Mm -hmm. And it was great being able to work with him on a professional level outside of the academic unit. Right. And how did you arrive at the design for this show for, for those who don't know it's a, it's about an autistic boy so i know there was a lot and, and not being overly familiar with the show but knowing that what you wanted the audience to experience was what he was experiencing so can you explain a little bit about the process how you came up with the ideas that you came up with for that sure Many times when I'm working on a production, I'll many different designs. I design tons of different things. I probably designed that show 15, 16 different ways. Um, I was trying to get away from the New York version because it was in a beautiful cube and everything was very geometric in in its form. And I was trying to break away from that because I didn't want to. I hate being, I hate copycat designers. Yep. Um, But there are no original ideas anymore. There just aren't. So in the, 14 of my 15 different designs, I was trying to get away from this cube, but I kept coming back to the symmetry of this design. And it, because it's through his eyes, the, the autistic boy's eyes, that's where he finds comfort. He finds comfort in the mathematics. And so the reason I could never figure out how to get to that is because I was getting away from the mathematics. So I came back to a cube and it was our, it was our own version of the cube. Right. It was based on geometry. It was based on mathematics. And it was able to transform with Chris's work. Um, When he was most comfortable, we were lit internal of this box that we created. Everything was very internal and was very structured. When he started to become uncomfortable, when he got out of that world, all of a sudden the walls became um, translucent. And we started to see um, shadows from beyond. And then chaos of the lights, all those, the LED pucks. And so it allowed us to take one set and go from what is comfortable to him to allow the audience to see some of that chaos and difficulties that some people with autism go through. So let's juxtapose that with, with Indecent and your approach to 
that production. How, um, yeah, how did you come up with the concept that you came up with? Susan and I worked very closely. I loved this in my first set design there. Uh, I've done lighting design, but um, working there was wonderful on this one because Susan was, she knows what she wants and she knows design and she thinks about design as she's conceiving the project, the project, project, sorry. So she knew she wanted it to be in an old theater, torn down theater, and she had some samples, some visuals of what those could be. The elevated stage was what was my nest egg. I really wanted that just very, very simple. I wanted to keep the whole design very, very simple. But that little elevated stage to be the nest egg to really allow those performers to live on that one little space. So yeah, it was just, it was, it came together so quickly. I was so pleased with that show. And as a designer, many, many times as I'm designing these 14, 15 different versions of it, I most often go back to my very first idea. And that's my, my gut instinct of what the play should be. And that's where I ended up back with this one. I designed it, you know, four or five times probably for that show. And I was so pleased with that production. The, I thought the lighting, like, like you said, I, was, I thought that the lighting and set worked so cohesively together on that production. Um, and it really played up to the intimacy of the Blue Barn. Mm-hmm. It's such a wonderful space to work in. I love that, that small intimacy. Yeah, and that's what was wonderful about it was because even though, it, even though it's a proscenium, it, it feels very much like a, an intimate space. And, you know, you had the actors on stage the whole time, but because of the way the set worked, the way the lighting worked, it was so very easy to focus on every single aspect of it. And the most breathtaking moment was right, was right toward the end, right before everybody got in line to go to the gas chamber. And that was that huge blinding white light that just took your breath away. It was ju- it was just absolutely stunning, and you're just shocked for that moment, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're all there in line, and you know immediately where you've been transported, where they've been transported to. Good, it worked. Oh yeah, <laughs> it worked. It de- well, it definitely worked for it. Definitely worked for me. But there are, yeah, when you have those moments when you, like I said, where the where it works so well where the lighting takes on a life of its own, where the the set takes on a life of its own. It's not distracting, but it just helps to mold the, you know, the story. It places you in that moment a little bit more, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think the And it's wonderful because it was very like you said, it was it was very minimalist and yet it was seemed very complex. And that's what I think. I love a set design. I love having that three or four minutes before the curtain that an audience can get sit down, talk amongst each other, look at the set, try to figure out how this is going to play in and become a canvas for the production. I think lighting is a character. If it's done well, it's a character in the production. And then it, it helps to tell that story. Absolutely. I, I do a wonderful, I, the thing I always, I love teaching lighting. And I was out the very first day of class. I tell my students, you know, okay, I want everybody to close your eyes. And then I'm going to say a word, and I want you to come back with the color of that word. You know, so, so they'll close their eyes, and I'll say anger. And everybody jumps back with red, you know, or sadness. Everybody jumps back with blue. So lighting is so much about psychology. 
I took extra classes in psychology when I was in grad school because I knew that there was a, such a, a play between the between psychology and lighting. I love color theory. I love all that geeky stuff. Do you have like any certain style techniques that you use on a consistent basis? Or do you let the production itself kind of dictate the style? Uh, I let the production dictate the style because I don't, I just got hired to do Raisin in the Sun at OCP. So I'll be working with Tyrone Beasley and thrilled to be working on that production. I've never seen that production before, so I'm thrilled to go into it, but I'm just going to let it tell me what it needs. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to approach all the shows. It's a little more difficult when I'm at the university and I know already know the space really, really well. And there's so many things that are dictated because of the spaces that you work in to dictate how an approach should take place on that individual production. So I really just let the play tell me what it needs, and I try to follow along with with what comes through. Do you find, do do you have different theories on lighting a play versus lighting a musical? Not really. It's it's all about telling the story through lights. Mm -hmm. So I'm not one, I'm not a mathematical lighting designer. Um, There are so many mathematical lighting designers that get out their little calculators and they're figuring out, you know, the the foot candles and everything. I'm not like that. I'll stand on stage. I'm like, okay, I'm, this isn't working. Let's just move that light over five feet and let's take it from there. We're going to throw this gel in it. And it's through experimentation and it's through feel uh, that I know what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And that, that's always been what works for me as a lighting designer. I know the mathematics and I can get through that. But So when you sit down to convey a mood, do you, for a particular scene, is there that much collaboration between you and the director where you say, okay, what are you thinking the mood is of this scene so that you know how to light it? Or, I mean, I would think, I don't know if it gets that granular with you working with a, a lot, you know, working with the director where you say, okay, what's the mood you feel of this scene? Or, you know, or do you have a specific mood at this point? You know, does that, do you work that closely with a director when you design? I don't in that I... I light mood. That's what lighting is. It's all about mood. So as I'm conceiving the lighting design, I'm already preloading all of those moments throughout the show into the lighting design in terms of what its capabilities are. Then once we're in the tech rehearsals and we get to that moment in the show, I've already got the entire show programmed. That's how I, I, I approach things. When we get to Tech Sunday or whatever it is, like OCP, I'll have the entire show completely programmed. And that might be the first time that my director is seeing that moment in the play. And I always preface everything, the very first attack rehearsals, this is just an idea. Every, nothing's in concrete. Everything can be changed. This is just my initial response to it. And I'll also show them, you know, these are the capabilities. Bring up all the lights and flood the stage with light more than we'll ever, ever, ever need. But we have that capability in my lighting designs. Um, and then we pull back to 20% and then everything can be developed from there there are certain plays certainly that for example with indecent susan so she knows lighting Mm -hmm. and it's very very important we spoke about many many of those moments leading up to tech weekend but i already it was already there right so right got you covered (laughs) that's good take a moment if you would please to talk about the different colors that you use for different moods Hmm. So interesting, well, interesting question. And I, well, and I don't, and I don't know. Maybe it's something that can't be answered. But I know you said when you were talking about 
with your students and you say, close your eyes, I'm going to give you, you know, I'm going to give you an emotion. I'm going to give you something. You tell me what color it reminds you of. Anger, everybody thinks red. Is there any other color that you can use that would denote that? That isn't... I understand what you're saying. It's more about the family of colors. Right. Um, I'll give you a great example. We did a production of Angels in America, uh, Millennial Approaches at UNO. And there was a wonderful moment where our actress was out on stage in like a tank top and it was all lit in oranges and reds and she was sweating and it felt really, really hot. And the next moment, another actor walked out and put a parka, big furry parka over her and through one lighting cue, I switched it to blue. We made it start to artificially snow. And I'd seen this moment 25, 30 times before. And the second that that light cue was hit, I felt the temperature in the room drop 20 degrees. And the audience did too. I still got goosebumps from that moment because our psychology tells us that those color choices and that combination going from the oranges and the reds to the blues and the teals was a shift in what we're used to as a human being. Right. We're used to seeing that. And we had a physical reaction to that moment. Our entire audience had a physical reaction to that moment. Loved it. Loved those kinds of moments. That's neat because, you know, and you know this because you've been on the acting, the acting side of it. You know that when you're in the middle of a production and the show's really going well and you say something and you know you have that audience hooked because you'll hear like an audible gasp or you'll hear that laughter or sometimes if people get upset, they'll start yelling things. I mean, and it happens. And it's not just in movies. It happens where people will say things or, or they'll say something out loud to their friend and they don't even realize it. And as actors, we're like, yes, we got him. So that's neat from a lighting perspective to be able to, I don't want to say manipulate the audience, but to engage the audience from a psychological standpoint, just with lighting. I don't think people necessarily understand that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. There is, a, I can actually manipulate audience members. And I, I mean that in a good yes. way. Yes. Um, there's a wonderful thing called retina burn. I love it. It's a fun little technique. But if I've got a wonderful, if I've got an actress on stage and this moment is I want all the lights to come down and focus just on her before I black out, I'll call it a tag. I'll tag out on her. But as it's coming down, I'll intensify the light to her and then I'll quickly go to a blackout. And as soon as I do that, the audience still sees her standing there even though we're in blackout. So that moment last just a little bit longer and it's through physical manipulation of my audience i love it <laughs> sorry to give you you know retina burn no. but how do you learn techniques like that at trial and error you know it's, it's the same thing if you look up at your light that's you know over sure. your kitchen table sure. and you look away you're gonna have that retina burn but sure but i mean i guess it's that moment of coming up coming up with that decision that i'm going to do this you know it's like the moments, and, and it's something so simple, and I'm sure it's so simple for a lighting designer to do, but I love those moments like where there's like a long, slow fade from one light cue to another as we see like the time of day going from daylight to early evening to night. This cue could be like 15 minutes long. And it's so imperceptible until all of a sudden, as an audience member, you're like, is it getting darker in here? Mm -hmm. And it's so imperceptible. But it, it, again, it's, an, it's 
making the audience be engaged with the production almost on a subconscious on a subconscious level and then they just re, you know they just realize I mean, you realize it when you know you're outside working in the yard and all of a sudden it's like oh it's, it's getting darker i better better finish right. you know pulling those weeds you don't necessarily expect that in a theater when you're just you're so focused on the actors and then all of a sudden you're like it's gotten darker in here i think those are the the most successful moments as a lighting designer or a sound designer those types of designs, if they go unnoticed until those moments happen, I think that's when it's most successful. I agree. You know, rock concerts are wonderful. They're, you know, the splash and trash. Um, it's, they're fine to look at. But I think the subtlety of a lighting design that really plays into those characterizations of what's happening underneath, I think is a stronger form of design. Mm-hmm. Do you find the more challenging shows to be the more satisfying shows because you're challenged as a designer? Of course, absolutely. My favorite part of design is the collaborative process. I love the creation of it. And once once the audience, I see it for the first time with an audience for the very first time, wash my hands, I'm done. And I move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. But it's about working with a bunch of creative people. And that's what I love doing, especially in our community here. I love working with this community of people and creatives and how we come together we create these wonderful things and we leave egos to the side as much as possible and we come together and create as an ensemble both in production team and as cast that's what i love to do do a lot of your uh, students take both scenic and lighting design together at the same time do they do you have them work on when they're working on projects that they do both or do you have them separate out separate out and then maybe later on as they continue working through their classes that they then combine those two areas. We've uh, recently been working, reworking our curriculum at UNO, and it is more of a sonography approach. So costumes, lights, set, and now we're starting to put in sound and projection design as well. Um, but we've got a series of three different courses that students will go through that is a collaborative, you know, we're going to work on Hamlet and we're going to all work on the set design. And then we're going to shift and we're going to become costumers on that. We're going to do three of the mini costumes are in that production. And then we're going to figure out how to light that. And I've got a mini light lab that I've created that will allow us to take a scenic model and put it in there and do some miniature light lab. So we can really start to experiment with how all of these different design components can work together cohesively. So they are starting to learn that. And that's, it's, it's uncommon in a bachelor's program to have that type of cinematographic approach. Mm-hmm. The area of projections, it's an area unto itself, but it is interesting how it more and it's becoming more and more readily available as a medium within within productions themselves. It's really becoming out of necessity. Many of these new playwrights in the way that the Broadway is happening right now is they want to cast fewer people and they want to build fewer sets. Uh, but these playwrights, the wonderful playwrights, these beautiful plays that are coming out, they're in 50, 60, 70 different locations. Projections allows you to very quickly ch- quickly change things very minimally. Uh, and it's really becoming, since you know, in the last 10 years, it's really becoming its own art form. And finally, they are being recognized as projection designers. And I think that's so important. Before were they lumped into, well, I guess before they were probably just weren't even recognized at all. But when those things were, and maybe you don't know the answer, that you probably do. Uh, when those things were starting to become apparent on Broadway and things like that, were they lumped in with scenic design? Were they lumped in with lighting design? Lighting. 
It was yeah. lighting. Yeah, almost always it's a lighting designer. You can ask John Jamalisco. And I've used projections in a couple of my shows, and you're right. It was. It was out of necessity. It was, well, we've got to be in, you know, five different locales when you're in a 55-seat theater. It's like, mm-hmm. well, what are, you, what are you going to do? Yep. The challenge was always where to put the projector. Of course. <laughs> so it wasn't hitting the actors. I had a production where I used them, and the mouse got moved, and there was a lovely actor with a arrow on her forehead. I'm like, move the pointer, yep. <laughs> move <Yep>. the pointer. <laughs> yeah, we had a moment like that in Indecent, one of the performances. Oh, the yeah. The mouse got hit, and there's a stupid little arrow up in the corner. Yeah, yeah. So where do you see lighting and scenic design how do you see that being transformed nowadays? You talked about with these newer playwrights and their vision, which in a lot of ways is almost like a movie. That's what they're used to. And then now you have the designers that have to try and you know keep up with that. And it's more than just projections. I don't know. I don't follow Broadway as much as I should. Hadestown, mm-hmm. and I saw like a clip, and it looked like somebody that was walking on a moving, you know, on a moving sidewalk, and they're walking in place, but it looks like they're traveling. And you just see all of these designs that are happening. And you're like, that is so cool, but how realistic? I mean, yeah, you can do that stuff on Broadway. How can a playwright who has these wonderful visions. I mean, not everybody's going to have their stuff done on Broadway. If you want to try and earn a living as a playwright, you're going to have to do regional theater or you're going to have to do community theater at some point to make some money. How, as a designer, do you mesh those two and and make it work? That's a great question. At the university, there are plays that we're avoiding because of that because of those types of plays that are being written. I'd I'd love to be able to work on them, but there's just no way in our space. So a lot of it is uh, the play needs to be picked that's correct for the space that it's going into. I think one of the best things that we have in our community is a Great Plains Theater Conference that brings young playwrights together with designers that can really start to to hear these on, you know, hear these in readings, see some small stage version of these plays. I think educating both designers on how to work with newer playwrights, but also how playwrights need to work with designers and have that understanding in mind as they're creating their pieces. There are certainly challenges to many, many plays, and that's why what I love doing. I love being the problem solver and trying to figure out how to fix things or how to make it work for our venue. Projections are certainly starting to play a much bigger role in that, which is fine, but we are competing with movies. As you know, our audience members can go and see an hour and 30 minute movie. And if it hits the two hours, they start to complain about how long that movie is. You know, let alone the last Marvel's show that just came out. It's three hours plus. Watch Gandhi. <laughs> ah, there you go. Um, so yeah, we have, it's a challenge, I think. And our audiences are changing somewhat. Uh, we, we, you know, in our community, we certainly have our theater audiences and they know what to expect. But our younger audiences that are coming through, I know with our students at the university that are non-theater students, um, it's a challenge. You know, you don't get to come in 10 minutes late because you're not going to miss the credits running, you know, or the previews. You need to be on time. So it's 
it's a, I don't know, it's about kind of, we all have to change our ways a little bit, but I don't want to forget where we've come from. Right. In terms of uh, the event of theater, I don't want to lose that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we will with projections. There are some amazing designers out there that are really integrating projections beautifully. You know, with AI and everything else that's coming about, there's going to be times where there's actors on stage that aren't there. You know, with holographic images, there was a there was a concert that the Black Eyed Peas performed in, and the lead actress was in London, and they were performing in New York, and it was all through hologram, and nobody knew it. She was <laughs> performing on stage with the Black Eyed Peas, and she was in a studio over in London, and they were in New York, and the audience that was sitting there right in this proscenium stage didn't know that she wasn't real. That's a little frightening. It is a little frightening. Performers beware. Um, yeah, it's... it's it makes for an awkward stage kiss. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. You know, but I mean, technology changes, and we just have to try to keep up with it. One of the hardest things we have right now with as a lighting designer is LED technology. Mm. Do you use... Do you... In, I know you use the LEDs for Curious Incident. Mm-hmm. Do you use a lot of LEDs at UNO? I try not to. I'm not sold on them yet. They're, I've got, I have them because I want to teach that technology to these students because this is what they're going to deal with when they get out in the field. But there's the color temperature is different than tungsten and it just doesn't feel right yet. Some of the technology is getting there. Mm-hmm. But there are theaters, especially in the UK right now, that they're the non-theater practitioners that own these buildings are dictating, we're going to get rid of all incandescent lights and we're going to go purely 100% LEDs. And try to represent a candle light with LEDs. Try to try to represent that technology and that feel and that emotion on stage with LEDs. It's difficult. It is. LEDs are very cool, but they're very cool. They still feel like cool, meaning temperature-wise. Right. You're right. You don't get that. You don't get that warmth. I mean, I even get that even with lights in my home. I have some Philips LED lights that... I don't know, like I thought I had the money to go out and buy them, and I did. And they're great, and it's nice I can dim my lights when I want to watch a movie or if I want to fall asleep on my couch. But they, at least for the ones that I have, don't necessarily produce enough light. And there are times, even when they're bright enough, that I'm like, "Eh, I'm still having kind of a hard time seeing to read. But they also don't have that warmth. Even when you put them toward the warmer colors, they still don't have that warmth. Yeah. What is the fascination with moving toward LEDs? Is it from an environmental perspective? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a cost-saving environmental. I mean, at UNO, I've been fortunate enough to be over in, the, in the, the hyper building where they have all of the infrastructure of the university. When my lights are, when my light board is turned on and I turn on my lights, there's a huge power spike in the university because it draws a lot of power to run these theaters. So yeah, there's an environmental thing, but there's also a, how much do you want to give up artistically? to be able to be green, as it were. Right, right. Well, maybe they'll just continue to be like a hybrid. I hope. I hope so. A hybrid between the two. I hope so. And then technology's coming up. I mean, another 10 years probably, we'll probably be done with incandescent lights. Sure, sure. Do you have a favorite show that you have as like a bucket list role that you would love to see somebody do here that you would love to design? Hmm. And Indecent was one of those. That was... That was just a wonderful production, and every single moment of that show was wonderful. I think that that 
ranks right up there as one of the best, if not the best show that I've seen at the Blue Barn, just from an overall standpoint of production, uh, performance. Uh, not that Blue Barn's, you know, puts on a bad show, but just the cohesiveness of everything working as one symbiotic unit, you know. Mm-hmm. I was involved in Arturo Ui, and that was awesome, but I I was involved from the inside, so that's different than being on the outside looking in. Right. Right. Uh, although the Woodsman was pretty incredible that too. That was amazing. That was a wonderful production. That was production. pretty incredible too. So, um, okay. So, Indecent was Indecent was one. You know, I really don't have any dream designs that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Usually, that my favorite productions don't develop until I'm halfway through the process. That they all of a sudden move up on my list of shows that I'm. You know, I always say, yeah, that one's not going to quite make my resume mm. or not make my portfolio. Mm-hmm. But there are certain ones that that do. And that's a lot of that's because of the process and the artists that I'm working with. And at McLeod Summer Playhouse in Carbondale, Illinois, uh, did the production of Chicago musical Chicago, and did the set and lighting for that one. And that was that was one of those shows. It just everything hit correctly, and that would that's going to be forever one of my favorite designs. Mm-hmm. I did a production out in when I was at Indiana University. It was in a small studio theater that you could reach up and touch the lights. It was an old modified classroom, tiny little space. And uh, it was an original play by one of the playwrights there called Cornfield Meat. And the director just said, it's supposed to take place in a little railroad shack in the middle of a cornfield. He says, I just want the most realistic space you can possibly give me. So my fiance at the time was 350 miles away so we'd go and meet once a week you know once a month or something halfway and on the way there I was thinking about this play and I saw this old dilapidated barn on the side of the road and I went and I knocked on the door of this old farmer and I said how much would it how much would you charge me to tear down your barn and take everything away and he got this really puzzled look on his face and he's like I don't know 75 bucks I'm like done so I called my fiance I said sorry I'm not going to make it this month and I spent two days tearing down this barn and throwing all the wood in the back of my truck and I went back to Indiana, and we built the entire set out of this this old dilapidated wood. And you know, it was enough that there was a a rafter that somebody bounced up again, and sawdust fell from the rafters, and there were still bugs crawling in it. And I made the floor look warped because we needed a little trap door, so I made the floor look like it was warped from roots, and there were roots that were growing up through the floor. And it was it was wonderful play. And the I had offered the farmer some tickets and he had driven all the way to indiana to came and come and see the show and after the show i he was alone sitting in the theater and he had a tear running down his cheek and i was like oh god what i do and i went and talked to him he's like that was the coolest thing he says my my great grandfather built that in the mid 1800s and to see that come to life again in a different form he said that was the coolest thing because he says it was like my grandfather built that i was like that was cool that was oh, very, very wow. cool. That gives me goosebumps. So yeah, it was a set that I built on was $75, and that was still, it's still one of the, the highlights of my portfolio. It was just a, it was a really neat, neat production. I want to take a moment to talk about UNO's production of Little Wars. A year ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Edinburgh, Scotland for the Edinburgh Festival Fringe uh, as kind of an exploratory tour to see if this is something that would be good for the university. Uh, so my colleague Scott Glasser and I were able to go to Scotland last year and uh, witness this. And it was, you know, I landed and we walked on the Royal Mile for the first hour. I was already sold on this. There was a, a young group from North Carolina, a school from North Carolina, and 
we were out on the Royal Miles talking to their professors and like 14 or so of the kids came running back from the Royal Mile. They had been out exploring and they were just bawling their heads off. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? You know, I was concerned. I was like, what happened? And they're like, thank you so much for this opportunity. Those 14 students had never been out of the state of North Carolina before. And here they were in Scotland doing what they're, being, what they're training and what they love to do. I was like, this is it. I, want, I, I have to make this available for our students. So we came back and with uh, the work with Jeremy Stoll, uh, the, uh, the one that you saw do Dogfight uh, at Westside. He's the instructor there. He and I developed an ensemble group of 20 students and 10 of the ca- 10 are cast members. And they worked together in Devise Theater to create Little Wars. And uh, we had a production back in May, I guess, early May at UNO. And it was kind of a just a half an hour snippet of what was eventually going to end up in the fringe and the group is back in rehearsals right now um and we're preparing right now for the omaha fringe festival we'll have two performances on february 26th and 27th um, and we're hosting this at uno so we'll have two of our both of our theaters will be full of eight different performances going on for four days uh, which we're really excited about having them in there uh, and then I'm going to throw these students on a plane and take them all to Scotland, and they're going to experience this. Uh, it's an amazing festival. Um, there are 3,000 different performances that are happening, and 500,000 people flood this little town of Edinburgh, Scotland, to take in on dance and movement and theater. And it is just, I mean, it's a celebration of arts and culture, and these students are going to get this opportunity. It's a once-in-a-life opportunity. And they're just, they're thrilled, and I can't wait to see them experience it. That's, that's what I'm most looking forward to. So we'll be heading out on July 30th for 12 days to be in Scotland. And that's, I love working at the university, not only for this opportunity, but also seeing where our students are going and what they're doing with their careers. And every, I can't think of a theater organization in Omaha that does not have one of our alumni working there. So it's, it's you know, we've, 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 we're kind of touting, we've got our new little logo thing that says, you know, where Omaha theater begins is where UNO, where UNO theater does. And I love that. I love that these students are going out and they're making careers and they're choosing to stay here in Omaha. Uh, Many of the people that have been on this podcast are UNO alumni. Um, And I just love that they're choosing to stay here because I came to UNO on the two-year plan. Graduated straight from grad school. I was, I'm going to be here for two years. And that was 24 years ago. Right. (laughs) I like that. I like that. Where Omaha Theater begins. Yeah. Okay, Mr. Lighting Designer, what's your favorite color? You know, black. Love black because it's complex, and you've got cool blacks and warm blacks, and depending on what light hits it, it transforms it. So it's you know it's a combination of all different colors, and I'm I, I'm I'm addicted to color. So it's it's the most complex color, and that's what I like. And you can tell by how I dress all the time. <laughs> you know, I dress like a technician. I like black. If you could live anywhere else besides Omaha, where would you like to live? I would love to live. Oh, probably near Aspen, Colorado, somewhere in the mountains. I would love to have a little cabin on a lake and just be able to drive an hour to an airport so I can go freelance around the country somewhere around the world, but I would like to be able to have that home. Do you still get the opportunity, I suppose it would only be over the summertime because of the university schedule, but do you still have the opportunity to go out of town to freelance? I do. I don't, I haven't recently as much because I, since I became chair of the program, it's a lot more demanding. And the kids, you know, the kids are all in school age, uh, but they're getting older. And as soon as they're done, I can see going back to freelance. Before the kids came around, I was freelanced a lot. Mm-hmm. And my wife was accepting of that. And, you know, once the kids are gone, she's probably going to encourage me to freelance again <laughs> uh, to get out of the house now and then. But, 
yeah, I, I, def, I love it because I get to work with new people. And I, like to, I, love, I love to travel. I love to see new places. If you could go back in time and have lunch with anyone, who would you like to have lunch with? That's easy. It's a sentimental thing about my father. He passed away before I became a man. And uh, I always wanted him, I would love for him to have the opportunity to see me now. And for me to see him being able to see that. That would be it. That's it's hands down. I know it's not a very glamorous, you know, I want to meet Einstein or I want to meet somebody else. But no, I think that's very, I think that's, it doesn't have to be glamorous. It has to be true to your heart. And I think that's wonderful. And it's interesting because I, you know, that's, I do equate how I became involved in theater because of his death in one way or another, even though it was like five years separated, four years separated, he still had, he was still part of my process Yes. of becoming the man, even though he passed away early in my childhood. Mm-hmm. So I would love to meet him again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mom would have to come along too, because they're together now. So it's, sure. So they'd, you know, well, it'd be nice go. to meet up with the parents again. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. I would agree with that. Who's your favorite band? Favorite band? Wow. My, my iPod has every, my iPod, my, <laughs> my, my tunage goes everywhere from Queen to Metallica to Zoe Keating to 80s hip hop to 80s new age. It's all over the map. Do you listen to music while you're doing your lighting designs? I do. Yeah. Do you tailor your music choices based on the production? I know that sounds weird. No, but, that's no, no, but, it's absolutely but true. I'm, I but I that. wonder if you, but I wonder if you do when you're sitting there and you're designing. If it's if it's something that's a little more, the show is a little more moody. Do you have a little more moody music behind you, or I know I'm certainly moody. And as I'm listening to music now that now you're saying that, you know, I can I'm hitting the skip button a lot more mm. on certain kinds of music when I'm working on different kinds of shows. So yeah, I guess subconsciously I am adjusting my my listening preferences to the show I'm working on. What's your favorite meal? I like, I'm a steak and potatoes kind of guy. Absolutely. What kind of steak? Uh, T-bone. Okay. T-bone would be my choice. T-bone's your choice. Yes. I'm a carnivore. Stephen Williams, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. What's your favorite swear word? Ooh. Hmm. Probably damn it. That's not that bad, but no, it doesn't have it doesn't have to be bad. <laughs> that's probably yeah, that's probably the one that comes out the most. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyoufivepod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's the other talk.